Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. The theme for Season 3 is better. Better everything, from AI to being fairer, big ideas to body language, if it's important to being a fairer person, business or planet, an expert and I talked about it. What follows is an edited recording, as Mouthwash is a live show created just for Twitter spaces, so the quality is more conference call than podcast sound booth. Sponsors are really important to me, so please take a moment to visit Ecology. They planted a tree in the TBD forest for every live listener we had. And if you want to offset your carbon footprint, you can do that easily. Just nip to ecology.com forward slash TBD conference and sign up. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com forward slash TBD conference. Also, I was honoured to partner with and test out Spaces Dashboard, the helpful tool that's making it super easy to find great audio on Twitter. Check them out on Twitter at Spaces Dashboard, all one word, and mount from Mouthwash for a surprise. Mouthwash is the audio show of TBD, the conference that people call TED without the bullshit. It's going hybrid March 31st, 2022. So get your tickets for the in-person event or the global live stream at universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Universe.com forward slash TBD conference. Use the code Mouthwash. You'll even get 25% off every ticket you buy. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Sign up to the newsletter on my Twitter profile. That's Paul underscore underscore Armstrong. And you'll get informed about all future seasons of Mouthwash. Trust me, you'll want to hear what we have coming up. Finally, as with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season three of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TVD Conference. The conference attendees say is like Ted without the BS. It is a strange time around the world. Zoom fatigue to climate change, the great resignation to the metaverse. A lot seems scary, unfamiliar, and people are rethinking everything from core beliefs to the way they work. A core theme that actually seems to be emerging is a desire to improve and make things, including themselves, better. So that's the theme we pick for season three, better. Better everything, from AI to PR, body language to open innovation. I've spoken with massive brains and execs from Twitter to Walmart, Babylon, to making you and the world we live in a better space. Uh, we've had people from authors, including the one we've got tonight, uh, security experts, speech coaches, Silicon Valley startups who wanted to reverse your aging process. It has been an amazing season. Get the SMS reminders so you don't miss a minute of it and when the podcasts come out. Okay, on with the show. Today's smart cookie is none other than David Badanis. He is an amazing author, a speaker, and he's done lots of other things, uh, which I will talk to you about in a second. Welcome to the show, David. How are you doing? Uh, David is very happy to be here. Excellent. I love that. I love that. Before I chat more with David, uh, let's talk about where we are and how you can get involved. Twitter Spaces is still new to a lot of people, so it takes a bit of time to explore it a bit. Um, most of you are on the mobile app. The top bit is called The Nest. That's where you uh, and I can see any uh, tweets like the ones you've posted up there already. Mouthwash uses this to discuss them in a section we call Desert Island Tweets. Uh, you can click through, follow accounts, see links, pictures, and everything like that. It's pretty handy and a unique feature to Twitter Spaces. Um, Lots of people are desperately trying to copy it. So, uh, yeah, very, very fun. And uh, if you run a space, you can obviously use it yourself. After beginning his career at Oxford University, David has worked for Shell Scenario Prediction Unit, the World Economic Forum, and he's spoken at TED and Davos to name a few tiny organisations. David has written multiple award-winning and critically acclaimed books, including Einstein's Greatest Mistake, The Secret House, and E equals MC Squared, which won, won uh, awards and been turned into a PBS documentary. 
Electric Universe, uh, which won the Royal Society Science Book of the Year Prize, and Passionate Minds, a BBC Book of the Week. It's safe to say David is a prolific writer and speaker, but he's also an avid kickboxer. A man of much brain heart, his latest book, The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World Turned Mean, brings all his experience together and explores cultivating your integrity and influence. And it's what we're going to be exploring today. David, what did I miss from your bio? I, I, I think you covered everything very well. It gives the wrong impression. You know, when you speak to somebody and summarize what you do, you tend to include all the high points. You don't mention the hours where you wander around your house in your gym jams, holding a cup of tea, wondering why you're in this room rather than another room. Those bits we edit out. But isn't that, isn't that the joy of it? Or, do you, or would you rather have those in? How many cups of tea do you think you've had in your life? <laughs> Every three years is a thousand. So that's about um, uh, uh, 20,000 days. Maybe drinking tea from the age of about most of that. I would say maybe 40,000 cups of tea. Good God. That's a lot of tea, isn't it? I'm sure I don't, I've, got to, I've got to Google that. What's the average for a British person? Who knows? I'm sure that's we in we we in next <laughs> higher. Who knows? Um, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Let's see. Uh, when I have a really good sleep, I don't know where I am when I wake up. That's usually a sign of a really good sleep. And uh, this morning was kind of similar. I woke up mega early, and I wasn't quite sure which room I was in, which is because the front of the house is noisy. If you want a nice house in London, you got to have a trade off. And my trade-off was living next to a noisy road. So sometimes I end up in the back of the house, sometimes in the front of the house. And there's this lovely moment when I realize, ah, I've been sleeping so deeply, I don't know where I am, which is a good Oh, time. very good, very good. Um, and I ask everyone this, how have the last 24 months been for you? For me, it, it, it was wonderful. Um, I, I doubled my social life. I see my wife for lunch every day. Normally, like, she goes into town. I don't see her occasionally. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, there was a cartoon of, uh, of an artist uh, at their easel, and the caption said, before lockdown. Then there was the, the next panel was the artist at their easel said, during lockdown. So for my sort of stuff, sitting around in a room, uh, not a great deal changed. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. As you said, I, I love going to a sports club and hanging out with the people there and chatting with people. And, and of course, it was really scary to see a big city like London, where I live, just give a little hint of what it's like if civilization diminish or fade away. Definitely. I know a lot of people who worked from home before the pandemic and they were like, another day, you know, and that sort of thing. But a lot of people, it freaked them out. So definitely um, feel their pain on that one. But um, yeah, I, I, I also, you know, revel in the, that people can get on with their lives as well. So, you know, that's always good to sort of think. But yeah. Um, OK, fairness. Let's talk about fairness in general. Um, the world seems more unfair than ever. Is this a realistic depiction or do you think the media narratives have just gone off the charts? Has the world truly gone mean? Um, the uh, uh, politics in, uh, in, in Western countries uh, certainly became more aggressive uh, with, the, um, uh, with Ronald Reagan um, in, in the 1980s. And in America, that led to the Tea Party, and it, it was copied in, in other countries. Um, uh, yeah, so um, uh, I, I think there was a sort of a, a, a basically after World War II, a lot of the Western countries really pulled together and, and really felt, you know, come on, we everybody pulled together to win this war. We need a social welfare state, you know, the famous middle of the road consensus. Um, and then there was a reaction to, to that about, you know, half a generation after the war in the 1970s and the 1980s with Thatcher and England in America. And people just got angrier and angrier. Also, limitations on media, uh, uh, basically the end of limitations, so that there a number of media began which uh, were independent and safe from a court control. It meant that the, the id, the, the angry side of human beings, 
could come out. I think one reason that people had censored themselves before is they knew from the 1930s and 1940s how awful it is when you start letting these hatreds erupt. But because mm-hmm. there's been 30 or 40 years of peace, people didn't feel a, a need to do that anymore. Uh, and so unfortunately, you ended up with the angry situation now. Uh, having said that, it's certainly not a more un- it's, it's certainly not a more uneven society than before. Uh, income differentials were, were really terrible in, you know, through almost all of human history. Uh, the class system was was much more vicious in Britain. So there's there, there's there's strengths and weaknesses today. Mm. Um, do you think the pandemic's exacerbated um, people's either perception that the world's getting worse or more unfair, let's say? Um, on the one hand, I sort of see people being ridiculed for not wearing masks and being sort of picked on and that sort of thing. But then also others are helping those less fortunate. How do you think the pandemic's affected fairness? Um, I suppose, you know, you know, one of the boring things about being old, you kind of see a little bit on one side, a little bit on the other. So it's made fairness uh, much better. Uh, Again, in uh, my expertise is more in the Western countries. And in many of the Western countries, there was a an outpouring of, uh, of, uh, of funds of of money from the government, uh, redistributing wealth to make sure that people at the bottom, at least could have, um, you know, uh, some sort of stable income, even if their their jobs were, were closing down. There was also, at least for the first few months, a, a great sort of respect for um, uh, for people who did the things which we could now see were crucial for keeping the city going together. Uh, Max Weber, the great German sociologist, was in Chicago, I think, in 1904. And he said it looked like a man with his belly cut open. You could see the inner workings. And the same thing when, when you didn't have all the business commuters in, in a city like London, you got to see what was happening underneath mm. garbage collectors, food delivery, which is all the time going on, but we, we often take for granted. So that there was a wonderful pulling together. This often happens at the beginning of, uh, of a wartime in many countries. And then as often also happens in wartime, you got profiteers and people who were wide boys who were taking advantage of it all. Mm. And we saw that the uh, super rich got even super richer. Um, the last president, let's let's sort of talk a bit meta before we go directly into the book. Um, the last US president uh, was a disaster for empathy, fairness and sort of nice guyness. Um, how much of an effect do you think that that period has had on America and the world in general? Oh, huge. Uh, you know, we're, human beings are tribal animals. We often, uh, you know, we look around us to see how to behave. Uh, you know, in a restaurant, if everybody's speaking loudly, you when you enter, you end up speaking loudly. And if everybody's speaking more softly, you, you find yourself, you know, slightly lowering your voice to more of a whisper. So we pick up the ambience around us. It's a very rare person who can, uh, who can stand up to that. Um, so uh, uh, Trump uh, said a number of things that were uh, really false, um, but uh, people got used to following whatever their leader said. Uh, and so they would try to follow the mannerisms. That happens in companies also. You know, there's sometimes food or attitudes, say in advertising in New York or in mm-hmm. banking in London. And newcomers sort of, they look around nervously and they pick up the mood. So the mood from Trump was the mood of rats throughout history, a mood of resentment and encouragement of violence, uh, uh, unfair charges, uh, stuff like that. Mm. Okay, um, tell us about the book. Why did you write it? What, what sort of inspired you to help people be better? I was at a, um, a, a conference, actually not a conference, it was a small meeting a while ago of a, of a, group, of a banking group. And somebody was uh, speaking, it was just about 10 people around a table. And this guy was really obnoxious and putting other people down. He was really just sharp to them. And afterwards, I said, oi, you know, what, what was that about? And he said, look, I'm a lot smarter than them. I have every right to act however I want. 
And I remember thinking, you know what? However smart you are, big boy, Albert Einstein was smarter than you. He was smarter than all of us. <laughs> Made a point of never acting rudely. So I thought, wow, so you don't have to be that way just because you can. And the other thing, another time I was at a, a conference and there was one guy there who was a super rich Wall Street guy who was a total jerk. And there was also um, uh, John Warnock who created Adobe. You know, whenever you use a PDF, a mm. portable digital file, that, that's his creation. So Warnock had become a billionaire uh, in Adobe in a hard competitive world. And he wasn't a nice, if you're merely nice, it's too soft, you get walked over. But does that mean you have to become thuggish like the, the banker guy I spoke about or the, the Wall Street guy? And what John Warnock showed is that there's an intermediate path, which you used to call firm but fair, where you can you know, get, get effective things done in a hard competitive world, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. And I remember thinking, how does he do it? So it made me think, let me try out uh, researching, speaking to people, reading, um, visiting companies and organizations. How do people find that intermediate path where they're not softies who get crushed and walked over? Uh, it's true that nice guys do finish last, but they're not like bullies and thugs. Uh, so I, uh, I wrote a book with uh, 10 case studies showing it's possible to succeed in the more decent way. Mm. Uh, I was going to say, you profile 10 people in the book, um, pilots to producers of Game of Thrones and presidents. Who is your favorite and why? I suppose it's probably the, the American president, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he was the guy in the 1930s in the Depression, almost a century ago now, who brought in the, the New Deal, uh, really uh, taking, um, uh, he didn't destroy capitalism. He didn't uh, uh, rich and create a revolution, but he mm. just said, you know what? Uh, it's really quite reasonable to share with people who have less. Uh, share a little bit, you know, still give incentives, but share a little bit. He was a, a decent and humane man who wanted to make things better. And what was interesting, he hadn't been born like that. He had been born a bit of a selfish git. He grew up in a super rich family, lived in a walled estate. People in the local village in, in New York State, where he was, would, the little boys would uh, take their caps off when they saw him and bow down. And he was, he was just selfish. Uh, even in his 20s and 30s, when he was uh, briefly uh, uh, worked in the, uh, the New York State legislature, somebody came up to him and said, look, do you want to help to have laws against child labor in factories on weekends? He said, no, of course not. Too busy, too busy. He was kind of like Boris Johnson. He was, uh, he was, <laughs> uh, and then when he was around 40 years old, something happened to change him. And he, uh, he reached the bottom of despair. He, um, he, became, he lost the use of his legs in something like a, a strong case of polio and also the use of his uh, hips. So he found it really hard to move. And he thought, oh my God, my life is over. And for a while, he, he lived like a rich playboy. He floated around on a houseboat in the Florida Keys, um, not doing much of anything. And then a really nice, sensible woman from uh, the slums of Baltimore said, look, do you really want to do this for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years till you die? And he began to realize, gosh, lots of people could be thrown into adversity and it's not their fault. Maybe I, who have all these privileges, maybe I can do something to help them. And I thought, what a lovely model for human beings. Mm. Oh God, I like that. Um, is that the one that taught you the most about fairness or was it another one? I suppose the... Um, uh, the thing about fairness is, uh, like like many uh, human uh, traits or or things that we do or human skills, you can read about it in a, in a book. You can have like a simple rule or something. Like in the stock market, what's the rule? Uh, buy low and sell high. But it's really hard to tell if the stock market is low or high. Uh, in, in boxing, uh, a very simple rule is move your head, stay away from the punches, and hit the other guy before he hits you. 
easy <laughs> to say, hard to do when a large, sweaty person is trying to do the same thing to you. So the only way to develop these uh, uh, skills is by practicing them. You have to practice. If somebody said, I read a book about the piano and I think I'll be able to play a live jazz piano, you won't really believe them. Same thing if somebody said, I read a book about how to be confident, or I read a book about um, how to be smart, or I read a book about how to be friendly. That's a start. Clearly, I'm in a great believer in books. I've spent mm-hmm. my life writing books, but it's only a start. What you have to do next is you have to actually respond to it and practice doing it. That's the only way to get better at it. Suppose somebody read a book about how to make podcasts or Twitter broadcasts work. Again, that's a start, but you know, Uh, you wouldn't invest in them until you'd seen them practice a few times, get the hang of it, overcome Mm. mistakes, push through. No, absolutely. Um, I like the Bible quote in the book. um, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the world but to lose his soul? You mentioned um, in the book about shortcuts. We're all looking for them. Uh, We don't seem to want to do the work. Or is that unfair? How do people or how do we get people to avoid seeking shortcuts? It's, uh, it's really difficult because uh, in the short term, it works. I mean, literally, mm. uh, if you think of a little child who wants to, say, watch a, a TV in the afternoon, if they say, Mom, I did my homework, for the next hour, the kid's safe. For the next few hours, they get to have fun watching TV. They don't have to do their homework. And it might only be the next day or maybe when they get their reports uh, at the end of term that it founds out, oh, they didn't do their homework at all. So there's always an incentive. I think in relationships, how people will lie to each other especially if they're short relationships. Um, And uh, you can get away, you can be misleading and stuff. So that will always be there. Uh, I think we we break from that for a couple of reasons. One, it's really not that pleasing to lie. If you've ever been in a really good relationship or worked in a nice company, it's just wonderful where you can tell the truth, where you Mm. can finally relax and you you can actually be yourself and you can trust that the people will accept the real you. The other one is over a long period of time, you're going to be caught up. Uh, you're going to be caught out. You know, if somebody gives the effect of doing something with bluster and fuss, really like that, eventually people will find out. Um, what do I go? I'll, I'll ask this before I ask the next one. Mm. So where does changing the paradigm start? Is it at a school level or is it at a breakfast table level? You mentioned children there. I, I think there's a lot to be said for how children are brought up, but I know also you learn lots later in life and social media puts norms on people and that sort of thing. Where, where do you think the issue starts? A lot is um, the, uh, what you see around you. Uh, there are some cultures that are very suspicious uh, where you know, you're taught, look, you can't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. And the reality is if everybody's being taught that, they'll often be suspicious to each other. Uh, very often cultures of suspicion are very hard to change. The only way they change is by emigration. People leave those areas and go to other places where their decency can be rewarded. Mm. Now, sometimes people will make a little bit of uh, trust. So uh, in the, uh, the latter years of the Soviet Union, you know, there were informers and secret police, and you had to say all these things about the government you didn't necessarily believe. And so people would put one face out in public, but they really loved they could have a, a, a domain within maybe a research group at a university or friends at home or a group of uh, uh, fishermen together where they could be honest with each other. So we're capable of, of having you know, different faces for different settings. And children will often pick up, they'll see from their parents, are you consistent in different settings? I mean, children are very good at, at recognizing um, uh, inconsistency and hypocrisy. And they'll, they'll start to pick up the mood. And you know that very often, it's not that kids uh, duplicate their parents. They're 
we don't we're not uh, cloning uh, we're not machines for cloning or photocopies or the American Xerox word. But um, you know, you often see patterns. You know, you visit a family and the kids pick up a sort of mood of should you be aggressive and interrupt? Should you be kind of laid back and jokey? Um, mm. So those those things are passed on in a way which. Now, that's not total power because kids also respond to their, and of course, there's many ways to rebel against your parents, but it's the sort of starting point. Um, in the book, you mentioned Leo de Rocha, um, the man, a baseball manager, who said, nice guys finish last. I think you said it earlier. Yeah. Um, he didn't have a good end, did he? Can you explain a little bit about him and, and why he didn't have a good end? Uh, yeah. It turns out we have a connection. I, when I was young and he was old, we overlapped in the fine city of Chicago. I live oh. in London now, but uh, I was in Chicago then. So uh, what happened when, when he was a young guy, he was a, he was a, a quick baseball player, but he wasn't great. Uh, and he was, a little, he was a little wiry guy with pretty good reflexes. And the only way he could get ahead and get to the top was by cheating, uh, being aggressive, uh, 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 threatening people to you know, smash into them with the spikes on the bottom of his shoes, uh, encouraging pitchers to, you know, the equivalent of bowlers to throw the ball really close to the opponent's head, stuff like that. And sometimes that works. Sometimes intimidating other people uh, can work. But mm -hmm. near the end of his career, running um, the Chicago Cubs uh, baseball team in my fine city of Ch home city of Chicago. And it turns out um, when this happened, it was about a long time ago, a generation ago, two generations, half a century ago, they had a really strong team, one of the better ones in their division. And they really should have their, uh, uh, the, the, the race to the top in their division. And they were way ahead in the summer. But it turned out he was so... Uh, 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 aggressive and so mean and it wasn't a jokey way it wasn't like come on you guys pull harder or ah oh, you know call yourself tough it wasn't like that he was a vicious fellow uh one time there was a a fan after a game uh, uh just an ordinary civilian who had been making fun of him a little bit so derosher made a gesture to an off-duty policeman who worked for the baseball team this wasn't in chicago this was at a previous team and they grabbed the guy they put him in a side room of the uh, uh where the baseball stadium was they locked the door the big policeman held this guy from behind and DeRosier started punching him. Not just once or twice. He punched him in the jaw and he punched him in the jaw and he shattered the guy's jaw and he kept on punching. And later there was a, it went to court and the policeman was recorded. He said, Leo, what are you doing? Leo, stop, stop for goodness sake, stop. But he, he had this, uh, this evil side. So that summer in Chicago, he played his players all through these really hot seasons with this really high humidity and high stuff. Um, and he wouldn't give them a day's off. He wouldn't rest them. And when he would criticize them, he wasn't, he wouldn't criticize their actions. He criticized them in, as human beings. So one of the guys, a, a famous shortstop named Ron Santo was Italian American and also had diabetes. So, um, if he ever felt tired or woozy, DeRocher really laid into him saying, you're weak, your whole culture is pathetic. There's something soft about you. I just don't like people like you. He went on and on like that. At one point, Santo grabbed him by the throat and said, you say that again, you say that, I'll kill you. So with that attitude, it really wasn't very good. And he also attacked the empires, not in a jokey way, but in a really vicious way. Uh, and one of the sports writers in Chicago said, whether DeRocher ever united the Cubs against the umpires, he certainly united all the umpires against the Cubs. Mm. Um, so his team began to lose. Other opponents really played their best they could. The, the umpires were against him. And even his own players couldn't stand him. So this guy who said, nice guys finish last. Well, his team that should have won lost. He himself mm. lost, lost, lost. And that particular year, he lost to a coach of a, of a New York team, the, uh, the famous New York Mets, who was known as one of the fairest guys in baseball. Now, this opposing coach, the New York coach, he wasn't a softie. 
this guy, this opposing coach, a man named Gil Hodges, um, he had grown up a son of a coal miner. He had served in combat in Okinawa in World War II and won a medal for uh, uh, courage uh, uh, in battle. So he wasn't a weakling, but he wasn't going to yell and scream at his players. Why? What was the reason for that? He kept a firm hand. If people were acting up, he'd say, look, sorry, guy, but you're out of the game. Tomorrow, if you have a good attitude, you're right back in. Bygones will be bygones. But until then, you know, we have to follow the rules. And his players respected him for it. They did really, really well. And they won the World Series. Mm. Why do you think the saying still persists? Uh, I, a couple of reasons. Uh, because there's a big difference between the word nice and the word uh, decent or uh, fair. And mm. not, it, it is correct. If you're merely nice and polite to absolutely everybody and do what anybody asks, you won't get anywhere. People say, oh, Paul, can you help me with this? Oh, Paul, would you mind just writing this up for me? Oh, Paul, could you do this? And you won't have a chance to get started on your own stuff. So there comes a time when you, not that you have to be a hard ass, but you got to you know, lay down uh, clear limits and stuff. So it's entirely true that merely nice by itself does finish last. Mm. It, it doesn't work. But the opposite, that therefore you have to be a total jerk to succeed, well, that's where Leo DeRocha was wrong. Mm. Uh, let's talk a bit before we talk about fairness and work and maybe some other bits um, I want to delve into the, the murky side of fairness and why people are bad and that sort of thing um, you, you, to talk about better I guess we do need to look at what goes wrong don't we um, we talked about Trump before um, why do so many terrible rise to power there's many advantages to, uh, uh, to, being, um, uh, to being pretty awful. Um, one is that you can make uh, quick decisions and you have no compunctions. You're not worried about, um, about who might get hurt. And sometimes you have to do that. Some companies, they have to lay off a certain number of people. Otherwise, the entire company will go bust. Sometimes in a military setting, uh, people have to be sacrificed uh, for a greater good. So there are, it's, it's genuinely true there are times when you have to make really, really hard decisions. Or think, think about just our own, your own friends in, in your own life who can't make decisions saying, look, I really tried, I invested in this enterprise. I really thought this new venture would work. Well, I got to step back and cut it off. It might you know, give unemployment to some friends of mine or something. And a, a, a nasty person or a psychopath, they don't care. So they can make decisions like that really quickly. The other reason, another advantage they get is that bullying often works. Um, suppose you're in the, uh, you're go- two people are walking towards a taxi. Uh, on the street, New York or London or wherever you are, if one person says, hey, I was here first, get on my way, unless you want to fight them, they'll get the taxi. So very often bullying and being aggressive works. You know, the other person says, oh, for goodness sake, go ahead, you do it. So they they can also get their way. And you can force people to do things. Uh, Keeping wages really low can make workers being forced to uh, work for you. And so that's, so those are some of the effectiveness things. The other one is that we as human beings, we often relish not having to pay attention to others. We relish not being polite and not being good. And we sometimes see a model in public of somebody who just kicks everything over and we think, yeah, I want to be like that. Um, You mentioned Danny Boyle in the book and I was really intrigued as to how he got all of those people when he was doing the Olympic um, opening and closing things to to not you know, share the secret, I think it was a hashtag. Um, it got me thinking about Hollywood, my time out there and that sort of thing. Do you think the power of a, ho- a Hollywood producer has is different to say the CEO of Pepsi? Um, I'd hope nobody sets out to be Harvey Weinstein. Um, are some industries just more likely to breed unfair, monstery, tyrannical people than others? I, I think uh, uh, the monsters come out for, in a couple of places. One is when the rewards are, are high. 
So uh, Hollywood uh, uh, is known for producing uh, worse people than uh, than the book industry. The rewards mm-hmm. in books are, are okay, but the rewards in Hollywood, you know, people can become you know billions. Um, so like so, or in Silicon Valley, it can bring out the worst because the rewards literally are billions. Somebody has an idea for a new sort of startup. Most startups, of course, fail, but there's a chance it can go all the way. So it brings out, you know, that greed-eyed monster of envy. It just, it can bring out the worst. The other thing that allows awfulness to uh, prevail is when you can hide it. You remember that horrible uh, doctor in America who was uh, abusing all these women from the gymnastics thing? It was quietly in the privacy of his office and under the dignity of being a physician. And it was an awful thing he took advantage of, but it was hidden. Uh, Harvey Weinstein uh, would, uh, you know, would uh, intimidate people very often in private. Um, And even in, in... intermediate settings, because he controlled the settings, his, many of his secretaries and his executive assistants, who didn't like him, he had almost no loyalty after he fell, they just, they thought, well, it's easiest to go along. Nobody, if he threw her at me, nobody's going to see that he threw the chair. Or if he came in my face and screamed at me, or if God forbid he tried to touch me or something, it's my word against his. He has a real lot of money. He has lawyers. There's lots of people who want the, uh, uh, some of these uh, powers that he has. Do you remember there was a time turn around to anybody and point their finger at them and say, you, you wrote a screenplay. I want to make it a film and make you very rich. Now, somebody who has that power, they get a lot of friends. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think sexism is still rife in most businesses, isn't it? Especially leadership levels. And I think while they're changing, nowhere near parity, certainly for most industries. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think nice or nasty differs for men and women? Um, it's, again, that, that depends on the culture. So there's some cultures where women are supposed to be very subservient and giggle and others where women are known like a traitors and you know, there's a great respect for their like, you know, uh, being quick-witted and, and being in the public domain. So, that, so that there's lots of varying, it, it varies around the world. Sometimes there, there's this famous double standard. You know, if a man says something considered, that's a good, strong guy. And if a woman says that she might be considered shrill or aggressive. Uh, luckily, in the last few decades, uh, there's, been, at least in some areas, there's been a certain amount of progress. So there's, as we know, there's many more women in, um, in responsible positions uh, now than there were uh, a generation or two ago, at least in, you know, in many countries. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not perfect. But and also a lot of young people are growing up in a world where you know, their moms work, their dads work. It's like all these, uh, many of the issues that they hear about are historical for them. Uh, there was, I think, I can't remember if it's called Title IX or something like that. It was a U.S. law passed uh, quite a few decades ago which said that for any sporting facility at an American uh, uh, university, uh, whatever money was spent on a sporting facilities for males had to be spent on the same amount. Mm -hmm. So if you had uh, uh, good showers and changing facilities and uh, coaches for men, you had to have the number of coaches and showers and changing facilities for women. Well, that was transformative. Uh, do you, you feature, we talked about politics before, it features heavily in the book, as you might imagine. Um, you talk about, um, Roosevelt and others. Are there any politicians in the UK right now that you think embody fairness? Yeah. So the current leadership of the Labour Party, the Labour Party historically has uh, been at many, many points on the spectrum. At the moment, it's fairly near the middle, which is where, uh, uh, most Brits are. So Mm. the, the policies, uh, uh, many people who, uh, uh, whether they like or don't like Keir Starmer, many people would 
they won't they won't criticize his policies as being unfair. There's no feeling that you know what he really has it in for one sector of society. He's going to re- reward his friends or his sector and really let the other ones suffer. There's this you know a feeling of, of decency there. Uh, at other times, there's been a, a moderate a Tories um, uh, who, who who've had that view. Uh, John Major, for example, was often considered uh, like that. Um, uh, there, there have been others in the past. And then, of course, there, there's times when people uh, go to other extremes. They might be right or they might be wrong. Uh, I, so I'm not going to uh, uh, give my personal judgment on that here. But people would feel that they're not, they're not trying to maximize things for the entire state, the entire nation. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're selecting one group. Uh, Thatcher, for example, had her favorites. Jeremy Corbyn, if he had come into power, had his favorites. Uh, a lot of the stories you tell in the book, uh, for me at least, felt like they had an undertone of that that beautiful phrase, discretionary effort. The thing that a person puts in more effort because they believe in a project or cause, you know, they go above and beyond and no one asks them to. Oh, that's a um, lovely phrase. I've never heard I, that phrase. That's a, Paul, that's a beautiful phrase. Oh, I, I didn't make it up. Um, I will find Great. a video and I'll send you that. Um, any tips or insights for listeners on how to motivate co-workers, leaders, loved ones into, pardon the phrase, giving the shit slash being fairer? Oh, yeah. So there it says, you asked earlier about um, um, uh, what are the strengths of a terrible person. And I mentioned some of those strengths. Uh, But it turns out the flip side of that holds. There's terrific strengths for taking the affair side. Uh, Just go in the book I talk, I I list them in three categories. And I'll just mention the same thing now. The first one is that um, a a bullying person, they never listen. You know what it's like. If there's a thug in in a family, at a family gathering, uh, people will be together at Christmas. Or if there's a, a thuggish person in an office, they don't care what anybody else thinks. So they don't they lose all the knowledge that the people there have. You know, very often, if you've ever worked in a poisonous office, uh, the people, the actual employees, they know what's going on. The boss is clueless. Um, so an advantage for being a decent person is people are more willing to talk to you. You, you kind of know what's going on. The other uh, another. So that's the level of listening. The next level is giving. Um, if you're if you're selfish and don't give as anybody else, keep them at low wages or boss them or cruel to them in a family, then mm. all you get back is resentment. And we know what resentment is like. On the other hand, if you're generous to other people, what you get back is a beautiful thing. You get back gratitude. And gratitude is great. Gratitude is where energy comes from, where creativity comes from. It just pours out. Now you have to be you, you have to be street smart about it. Uh, if you have a big organization, you have to have a little bit of auditing to make sure that people don't take advantage of you. But that gratitude is a beautiful thing. And then the final thing after listening and giving is a different way you, you can defend yourself. You can defend yourself really angrily, like you looking at me, you looking at me, you know, being very aggressive. Uh, two days ago in the Times, the, uh, the, in, in Britain, the, the London Times, I, I had a, a, a nice big piece on Microsoft, which in this century had one leader who was really aggressive and put up high boundaries and over-defended the company and was really against alliances with the outside. And the share price went down. And there was another leader, Satya Nadella, the current leader, who was a great believer and like, let's consider, can we trust other people? Can we open up? Can we defend ourselves? You need lawyers. People are always going to try to rip you off. But can we, if people have shown that they're going to be reasonable towards us, can we ourselves be reasonable back? And as a result, you get alliances and you get a lot of people working on your side. So if you Mm -hmm. follow these fairness principles, you listen well. As a result, you put your ego to the side and you get more information. You give generously. And so you get gratitude coming back and you defend but you don't over-defend. And as a result, you get alliances and friends. As they say in New York City, what not to like. 
<laughs> I do love that. I miss that phrase. People used to say that when I was in LA as well. Isn't it great? Yeah, I do like it. Um, I want to um, talk briefly about fairness and work and also technology and how they're sort of um, coming into it and that sort of thing. Um, you mentioned in interviews that you think social media has a meanness to it, or rather it amplifies the mean. Can you explain what you mean by that and how we can improve it? Oh, sure. Um, uh, you know, uh, it amplifies. Uh, in private, some people are saintly, some people are, are mean. And if um, uh, the, the saintliness is, is often on a sort of a small scale, build up good or decent or not even saintly, just fair actions, you need, you need an organization or a network that can kind of build up. And as we know, it's much easier to destroy something than to build up. Uh, it's, it's fun to read, uh, to, to make fun of something. I mean, what do, what do teenagers and people of all ages do when they get together? They gossip about their mates and they say, oh, look, look how silly this person was for that. So it, it's easy to mock and, and bring things down. It touches on a deep human part of us where it's easy to be critical. And the thing is, historically, we've had to be critical. Suppose I'm not a carpenter, Paul, but suppose I was a carpenter and made a beautiful desk for you. And I mm -hmm. said, rub your finger along the desk. And you rub your finger along the desk, and it was really nicely smooth. I made everything nice. And at one point, a splinter was there and cut one into your finger. You would say, ow, it's a bloody awful desk. So, And I could say, look, you rub your finger along, I don't know, 35 inches of a really nice smooth desk for one-eighth of an inch of a splinter. And the answer is, yes, I'm very much complaining. It hurts. So we notice flaws. It's easy for us to notice what, where something's wrong. So, And on social media, uh, because you often don't have legal constraints and there's no recall to court, people can say something negative, and we as human beings have a reflex uh, um, to pay attention to something negative. I mean, so, so suppose we're going uh, down the street and we're going to a restaurant in a new area, and somebody's walking down and saying, oh, God, that restaurant was awful. I got terribly sick. Um, your first thought might be, ooh, I, I don't want to chance it. You have to be aware of what might be negative. And on social media, you get that amplified. Mm. Um, it's part and parcel of what we've just talked about. It's all about algorithms, really. But AI and fairness, or perhaps bias is a better term to use, uh, is, is coming to the forefront from a lot of people, not just the platforms, but hiring and that sort of stuff. How concerned are you about AI when it comes to making the world a fairer place? Oh, it, it'll uh, something like AI uh, takes uh, human uh, power arrangements and just multiplies them. So mm. decent people could use it in, in a really nice way. Think of identifying, um, uh, well, I, I can give an example of, uh, uh, back over a bit over 100 years, the equivalent of AI was sort of standardized tests and analyzing the standardized tests. And there's a guy named um, uh, Binet who worked in the slums of Paris, and he was trying to use that equivalent of very simple AI to identify children who were from deprived backgrounds who needed extra schooling and better food so they could do better. And uh, he would uh, give out these tests. He would see who did poorly on them, and he would make a point of giving them, as I said, betting and stuff, and lo and hold, on the test later, they did better. Now, these were the very first IQ tests, intelligent quotients, and his view was, of course, this is a flexible thing that can change. Uh, somebody's insecure or they haven't had good teaching, of course, they'll do badly on these tests. Give them real trust and support, have good teachers spend time with them, and they'll do better on the tests. Mm -hmm. No surprise. Think of an athlete. Anyways, those same tests switched when they went to America. They moved more from a Catholic to a, a, a more Protestant country. This notion grew that IQ was something that was fixed and you had forever, which is an incredibly cruel thing. Somebody uh, from, who grew up, say, with poor schools will take this test. They'll do poorly. 
And instead of being benevolent, like Mr. Binet was in Paris, and saying, okay, great, we've now diagnosed somebody who needs this extra work, let's give you this extra help, it would be like, ooh, you're going to permanently stay at this lower position. So AI is like that with string, you know, multiplied. So nowadays, people who want to use it benevolently, like Binet, a certain amount of power, but if society is dominated by, um, I don't know, industry or organizations or uh, uh, cultural groups that want to use it badly, now they have this powerful tool to use it badly. Mm -hmm. I mean, famously, there have been books about how AI can have racism or sexism written into it. And in a racist or sexist society, it'll multiply these bad attitudes. Mm -hmm. In a society that's fighting racism or sexism, then AI might be able to be used to pull away from bias. So it's sort of like um, having a, a tool, uh, like a, a powerful hammer. And depending on how you move your hand, the hammer magnifies the power of your hand, but it'll still follow the way you're leading. Mm. Oh, I like that point. I definitely hope that people are starting to sort of, I'm seeing some green shoots and I'm seeing some startups sort of focus of, on um, going through people's AI to make sure it's, it's gone or mitigated and that sort of stuff. So I, I'm seeing- Oh, that's really good. Yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing some interesting stuff. Come. Not, not nearly enough of it, but uh, some of it, you know. Um, good. Well, you can encourage it. I mean, you can you can sort of say, call it out in the good sense of calling it out. It's like, hey, yeah, that's a good call out. Yeah. It's like, look what they're doing and, you know, raising awareness of this approach because it'd be a beautiful thing. So we always use technologies to augment ourselves mm -hmm. with shoes. We can walk over rougher ground with um, with coats. We can uh, inhabit colder climates and stuff. Why not use AI to uh, encourage the better parts of human nature? Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, in, in sort of like that, my last sort of question focuses, you wrote an essay recently that said something uh, I think is important, uh, I'm summarising, but essentially that constraints can actually improve our lives when we allow them to activate our desire to overcome our creation. Uh, any advice for people who might not have realised that yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh that, that, uh, I remember that. that about mediocrity. Yeah. About uh, the uh, yeah, that was from Financial Times. Uh, I think it's on my website and, and, of course, on the Financial Times about the power of mediocrity. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes if you're if you're in a uh, again, you know, people often say when you're in a so so position, you kind of accept it. You, you continue that way. Eh, it'll do. But if you're forced to be a, a migrant and you're thrown back to the really bottom of society, you got to pull everything together and really work harder. Um, I mean, it's clearly we don't want an unjust world where people are forced to be like that. But when it does happen, you can sometimes get this great burst of energy. You know, you if you really can't count on getting inherited money from other people and you don't have networks of people who will open the door for you, you have to work hard and say, God, I got to be really good. Think of all the minorities that have been successful in uh, in media, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, racial minorities and, and, and uh, gender, uh, often people are outcasts on gender and stuff. They're not getting any great benefits from family networks. So they know that if they want to move ahead, they have to be really good. Um, it's the point that, uh, uh, so some people who have uh, no discrimination against them, they're often not especially talented. They've never had to push hard and they can be kind of lazy. This is not an argument for discrimination, but just saying that sadly in a world uh, which we have now, where some people are treated unfairly, that can often inspire people to say, yeah, right, okay, you're going to do that? I'm going to show you what I can do. It can be a, a great energy source. Final question, what's your best advice for people who want to be fairer? Uh, it's probably the golden rule. Um, uh, really look at it from somebody else's perspective. Mm. Gosh, if, I was, if somebody treated me like that, how would I feel? And the other thing is, don't beat yourself up. You know, you, we, we're not perfect. We're not saying we have reflexes. We can get 
cranky. We can be, you know, all that other stuff. But every now and then step back and think, gosh, how would I treat myself? I was speaking a while ago with a friend who used to stand in front of the mirror and say, oh, this looks bad and that looks bad. And I'd say, look, you know, you would never say that to one of your own friends. So why treat yourself that way? And they said, oh, good point. I'll try not to. <laughs> I like that. Okay, folks, uh, this is the time of the show where normally it would be David's Desert Island tweets, uh, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. He's very kindly given me the reins tonight, and I'm picking a tweet by All Things Audio Suze. Um, she and co-host Madeline came up with a great challenge, 100 voice notes in 100 days. It's a very cool feature on Twitter where you can literally do a voice note. It looks beautiful. You can see it in the nest uh, up the top if you look on the um, mobile. Um, she, uh, sorry, I'm joining in with the challenge and um, this tweet explains it from Sue's, so I'll read it out just in case. So here it is. Voice 100 starts today, an idea I came up with during yesterday's All Things Audio to get more people using voice tweets. Record your tweet, add the Voice 100 hashtag, and join it every day for 100 days. Some people are doing their own sort of lists of things. I'm doing one about creativity tips and productivity, just because I need to be more of those things. Um, but other people are doing um, websites and things like that. It's very fun. Lots of people from around the world are doing it, so it's just a good way of sort of getting knowledge and good information out in the world, which I thought was very fair and that's why i put it up today um thank you for being part of mouthwash david also advice for listeners when it comes to um, being fairer in general or being fairer to themselves or I, I, one thing that's a, can be a really satisfying thing to do is to be fair to the uh, author and uh, i've been informed that if you buy copies of this book be in hardcover or paperback Wonderful things happen. I, I don't know if this is the case, but we might need to do a large statistical study to find out if buying the art of fairness is actually good for your soul. <laughs> I love that. And where, pay tell, can I buy? I assume Amazon, where all good books are sold and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, yeah, I'd love uh, local bookstores online. There we go. Excellent, excellent. Um, brilliant. I've had an amazing cohort of people this season on Mouthwash, big tech entrepreneurs, uh, designers, speech writers, best-selling authors to big tech. We've helped you live longer, trust easier, be more present, read Zoom body language, become comfortable with uncertainty and a whole lot more. Thanks to all of my guests. Look out for the episodes when they become popular. Uh, in fact, head over to mouthwash.norby.live to get SMS alerts about big news and when we go live so you don't miss a minute of when season four is announced. Oh yeah, breaking news. There's going to be a season four. Uh, the theme is a secret for now, but like I said, get the SM alerts. You'll be the first to know. Um, if you love mouthwash, you'll love TBD Conference. It's like mouthwash, but all day, even bigger and even punchier. Uh, oh, and it's in real life. Uh, so, yeah, that's always fun as well. We'll be streaming online uh, as well this year. You can buy tickets and find out more about TBD Esperance over at the tbdconference.com or check out tickets directly over at universe.com as well once again my thanks to the superb david badanis um follow him on twitter david badanis uh, and check out his website at where else but at davidbadanis.com uh please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for david as the lo-fi music plays us out one last time for season three thank you for joining thanks to ecology for planting a tree Free listener in season three and thanks to spaces dashboard for helping good audio be found i've been paul armstrong the mouthwash a fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on twitter spaces Thank you.